we're in our room and we're grabbing our body armour and stuff to go into the shelters and I never forget just sitting there going, if that had hit me, my kids would not have a mother. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. 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 I could never not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of our She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Donna Watts Andres is an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force. She has deployed to Afghanistan and South Sudan. Donna shared with me her experiences overseas, how military service impacts on the family back home, and her reflections on her time in uniform. Donna, thank you for coming on Life on the Line. My pleasure. Let's talk about your family first, Donna. Do you have any military history in the family? A long history in the military, going back to World War One, where I actually had two uncles that um, we passed away in Gallipoli and we found them at the War Memorial recently and laid a poppy on their memorial in um, at the War Memorial there. And also my great-grandfather was part of one squadron in World War One, and then my grandfather served in World War Two and Korea and my father was a gunner Vietnam in 1965-66. Did your great-grandfather and grandfather all get away from those conflicts okay? Did they return home? They all returned home safely. My father, obviously, being in Vietnam, he was in the Battle of Long Tan and he had a really interesting story from when he was in Vietnam and sort of sparked my interest in the military. Was your father in Delta Company? No, he was a gunner, so he was in artillery during the time. So I went in just after they heard all the gunfight happening and um, said, well, on for it, and they had to go in and, and assist in the um, Battle of Long Tan. Well, the artillery saved Delta Company from being wiped out. So your father was a vital piece in saving those Australians from utter annihilation. Yes. Did your father talk about his experiences much when you were growing up? Not when I was growing up. It wasn't until I actually joined the Army Reserve uh, when I was at university in 91 that Dad actually attended one of his first um, anything to do with the Army since leaving the, uh, the Army in 1966. And what about your grandfather? Did he share much with you? Not really, no. He was the sort of the same, talked about it on Anzac Day, used to go and watch him march in Brisbane, but they never really talked about their experiences. What was your family structure like? Any siblings? Yeah, I come from a large family. I have three big sisters and a younger brother. All grew up in a three-bedroom fibro house in Brisbane, so it was an interesting place. Big age difference. My sister's 10 years older than I am. My older sister, then nine years older, seven years older, and my brother's five years younger. Did any of them grow up to have an interest in the military or you're the only one? My younger brother did the Army Ready Reserve straight after school, but I'm the only one who's actually stayed in the military for a long time. I was going to ask what first took your interest in the military, but you grew up with it. It was just, was it osmosis for you? Did you have an outlook to that kind of career from a young age? No, I actually wanted to be a police officer or be a teacher. Went to university and while I was at university doing a Bachelor of Arts, that's when I joined the Army Reserve as a truck driver. And that's where I sort of gained more interest in the Australian military side of it and ended up uh, joining full time in the Air Force. So you got a taste for it. Why did you choose to leave the land for the sky? 
To be honest, I think it was to do with the job that I was going to be doing. When I applied for my job, I couldn't see myself driving trucks forever as a 19-year-old. So at 20, you know, like it was good fun, but it was something I didn't think was a long-term career and joined up as a, a back in the day we were called a clerk in administration and could see that I could do that for a lot longer. How did you find the training experience with the Air Force and did any of your reserve time give you credit towards that? How does it work from a civilian listener's perspective? So for me, when I joined up as an Army Reserve to the Air Force, I was given credit for my long service leave and also I was able to use my experience from the Army Reserve into my training for the Air Force. But unfortunately, I had to do the three months worth of training at one RTU, one recruit training unit at Edinburgh in Adelaide for three months. And when you're in the training cycle, how did you find that? Were you feeling more excited as you got into it? Was this starting to be the beginning of a career you thought could last a long time or was it one day at a time? It's an interesting question. I think it would have to be one day at a time. Back then, I, like I said, I was only 22 when I joined the Permanent Air Force and I had actually only signed up for three years. I had no intention of staying in the Air Force for a very long time, but it was enjoyable. The training was great and it was good to have that I don't know, the regimentality of getting up on time and doing what you needed to do, especially after being a uni student for three years. The military would have given you that abrupt sense of structure. It certainly did, yeah. It was a wake-up call, like getting up and having to do things on time, you know, going to your physical training lessons and then having to run back, have the quickest shower instead of, like, taking your time and getting back into another sort of uniform. Yeah, so the training was, it was intense, but well worth it and sets you up for a year career. What was the demographic of your class like? Back in 95, we had about 10 females went through with me. I'm in touch with most of the girls still, but it was mainly males, big majority of uh, men that were in there. You joined as an airwoman. Tell me about your early domestic postings. So when I joined up, we did, as I said, we trained in Edinburgh and then we moved across to Wagga, Wagga to do my Clark training, uh, which was a three-month course. And after that, I was posted to RAF Base Darwin. So... That was an interesting dynamic. My mother was very upset. She thought that Darwin was the other end of the earth. But for me, I didn't join the military to go home to Brisbane. I joined the military to, to see Australia and see the world. Oh, my posting in Darwin is actually where I met my husband. So, And we've been together since 96. We've done every posting together since then. Because your husband is a senior Air Force NCO. Yes, correct. Tell me more about your posting in Darwin, your role, responsibility and your day-to-day life there. So posting to Darwin was a big eye-opener back then. Darwin was a big country town, had one shopping centre. So I do remember flying into Darwin, looking out the window, thinking our flight's been diverted because I looked down and there was absolutely nothing there. We got off on the tarmac and I remember being hit by this wave of heat, even though it was the middle of June. I'd come from Wagga where it was like minus one degrees um, from training. So, yeah, it was quite an interesting shock to the system. And I imagine you didn't go to Darwin expecting to meet your future husband there. No, I didn't. No, my plan was to finish up in the Air Force after three years of my initial enlistment. Back then, as a clerk, that's all I had to sign up for. And I wanted to travel Europe with my friends that I went to university with. They were all backpacking around Europe. And my plan was to save some money and go and meet them. But managing every posting thereafter together, that's quite an achievement. Yes, it is. And we've also got two beautiful daughters. Our first daughter was born in Darwin in 2000. While I was in Darwin, I actually served at three different units while I was there. I worked at the old 321 ABW Air Base Wing, which was the base unit for the whole of the RAF base there in Darwin. My job there, I was pay clerk, I was admin, I did removals and a whole lot of other work there before they changed uh, to more streamlining the clerical mustering. 
Your first overseas deployment is Afghanistan in 2007. How did you react when you learned of that deployment? Well, this was on our third posting. We were actually living in Brisbane at the time at RAF Base Amberley and my husband and I were both serving at Amberley. My husband was at the air traffic control tower as a technician and I was administration in the base command post. So an expression of interest actually came through for the position. It was for a pay clerk and at the time I had my two daughters, which uh, at the time Keely was seven and Hayley was two, actually not quite two. We decided that we we're in Brisbane, we had family support, so I asked my train of command, I said I'd really like to be considered for this position. So that's how it came about. But what led you to decide that expression of interest? Talk me through some of the domestic postings you had between that point and Darwin to understand your journey to want to go overseas. One of the biggest things I think for any military person is we train to go to overseas, to war, to deployment. So to have an opportunity, I've done a lot of training between my enlistment in 1995. As I said, I did my first posting in Darwin. Uh, then I went to Weemtown, RAF Base Weemtown. I was posted to three squadron as the ops clerk. And that was an amazing operations clerk, amazing job working with air crew, doing airspace, working about flying schedules, knowing what goes on an aircraft. So totally different to what a normal clerical role as it's changed throughout time. So that was a really big thing for me that I just wanted to go and work and do what we're trained to do. While I was at Three Squadron, I did a lot of domestic exercises or domestic deployments. So I was able to go to Singapore as the ops clerk working with the squadron. But that was a very interesting and to Malaysia as well and um, did a few other domestic exercises back up to Darwin and to Townsville while I was at Three Squadron. It's that almost cliche but comparable analogy of, you know, an elite sportsman training, 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 and then never been able to play a game. You want to test your skills. You want to realize everything you've trained up towards at that point. To put your skills into real time is what to me was the best benefit. Going on exercise was fantastic because you're out of your comfort zone, you're away from your family and it tests your skills, it tests your resilience. So then to be selected to go to a deployment because of the skills that I had from my training. So I went over as the pay clerk in 2007. So for us, I'd been trying to be deployed for a very long time since Timor. I was pregnant with my first daughter when I could have gone and that was a hard. The changes we've had with part-time leave without pay through the military has helped me stay in. So back when I had my first daughter, I didn't have the support network to be able to be deployed at the time, both work and domestically because we were in Darwin. So that's how the, it came about for this next one. Like as I said, in 2007, we were in a location that was suitable for our family and I knew my daughters would have the best care with their grandmother and their grandfather and my husband if I was to be away for an extended period of time. How old were your daughters by that point in 07? So Keely was six and a half. Well, she would have been just six and Hayley was, when I left, we just celebrated her second birthday. So still quite young, but you've had the military in your life longer and the opportunity finally arises, this deployment you've been seeking for years and to right, you should decide, no, I'm going to chase this. This is here. I'm going to do it. Do you remember the day you arrived in Afghanistan? Our first uh, part of your deployment was actually going over to Kuwait. We had to travel on the A330 from Sydney. So for me, I left from Brisbane, waved off. The biggest thing with my deployment was I was actually going over on my own. So I didn't do any force preparation with anybody else that was being deployed. I was a short notice deployment. So I'd gone down, did a two week force preparation training, 
back home and then pretty much was on an aircraft going where I had no idea because at the time they weren't sure where I was actually going to be located. I had no idea that I was actually going to end up in Afghanistan at that time. So we went to our first staging post and I was there doing my basic training and they go, oh, you're the new pay clerk and you're going into Kandahar. And so I somehow had to get that message back to my husband without telling him exactly what was going on because of security at the time. Didn't have the communications that we do now and it was a lot more strict on what you could say on the phone and those sort of things. So about two weeks later, I'm then on an aircraft to Afghanistan and I will tell you it was the most scary, exciting, I don't know the feeling, but I was on my own again and the load masters of the Hercules aircraft was telling us like when we fly across the particular wire, you have to put your body armor on, your helmet on. And the funny thing is like all the training that you do, I still was not prepared for what it felt like. So going across, so sitting there on this aircraft and we landed into Kandahar, did what they call an ops stop. So the plane wasn't staying. So engines were still running, it was really, really quick. And the load master, I never forget, was standing at the back and the tail gates opened. It was hot and it, the smell was quite overwhelming of what I was coming into, but the heat, you could just feel it as it rised up. So the loadmaster, it was pointing at me and I'm sitting there with my rifle and all my stuff on going, I'm not getting off this plane. <laughs> and he's going, you have to go. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So I'm looking around and I was the only person, there was two other people getting off who'd had more experience than what I'd had. Yeah, I literally had no idea what to encounter. So coming out the back of an aircraft with the loadmaster waving at me and I was, uh, yeah, it was pretty, pretty daunting experience when you're not there as a formed body and you're there on your own. So, yeah. It's not unique, but it is unusual to be training by yourself and getting over there by yourself. It would have made it, I can only imagine, a lot more intimidating and gives that extra edge of excitement perhaps because you're facing this adventure on your own. You don't have someone there with you. How do you find settling into the unit and adjusting to your new colleagues who are already in country? So when I got there, the people that I was working with were actually on their wind down, on their way out. So they had about two weeks left of their deployment. So you're out of sync with the rotation. Yes. So I hadn't trained with any of them. I didn't know any of them that were there. It was a tri-service environment. So it was Army, Navy and Air Force. My position was newly set up. So there was no... When I got there, I had no desk, I had no phone, no computer. So I had to try and source all that sort of stuff and set up my pace. And I was sent over as a pay clerk to pay people. So I was a cash officer so they could actually come and get money because it was there was no ATMs, I guess, around the corner. Uh, you so were the ATM. I was the ATM. So that was my job pretty much. So I had to set that up from scratch and organise the pay system and things like that. So it was a big experience and it did call on a lot of my training because I had been a pay clerk when I was in Darwin. So I knew what needed to be done. So I sourced the correct people that were trained. So we had some communication technicians, some signals operators that were there and they assisted by helping me load the programs that I needed to get my job done. So you mentioned the heat and the smell. Yes. How did you cope with adjusting to the new conditions? It was hard at first. It was a very daunting experience because you're there to do a job and you're so far away from your family. And as I said, the communication wasn't like it is now, like it wasn't instantaneous, like on Facebook or anything like that. I had Messenger on my computer if I would, could get into that and it was just phone calls and the just basic communication. This would be MSN Messenger. Yes, that is it. I remember. 
<laughs> and that didn't work very well because we didn't have the um, bandwidth most of the time. Didn't work very well in Australia anyway. And can you just try and describe the smell? Um, it was an open sewage farm. So it was not pleasant at all. And it did, it hit you like a wall. Can you describe a bit more your day-to-day routine? Sort of what time do you wake up and then how do you spend the day? So for me, as I was saying, I was the pay clerk. So most of the time I tried to work with, I had to work with Australian times and being eight hours behind. So I used to come into work at five o'clock in the morning to start my day to get things started because the pay system would shut down after a certain time. And so that was my morning routine. Then I'd generally get my transactions done, get all the computer work done because it did crash a lot being where we were and just making sure stuff was done so people weren't disadvantaged at home or when they left country. So then I would go to breakfast and probably do some PT. I used to run out the back of the base a fair bit. It was an interesting run because we had to carry our weapons with us when we were in and around the base. But if we were doing our physical training, we didn't have to carry our weapons on us. So it was a bit of a difference. So going around day to day and then I would open up and be the cash office. So then people would come and get their money if they needed to. But being that I was also administration trained, I would help out the administration clerk and do whatever I could to help out because it was a very small team that was there in, in Kandahar. I'm trying to give listeners a mental image. If you're standing out where you'll be running along and base doing your PT, what's the layout like? Can you describe the buildings and the landscape before you? It's desert type landscape. So on one side, you've got the base and then you've got the fence and you look out and then you've got another fence that sort of stops. So you've got like your perimeter and you've got your guard posts set around as well that are there to keep an eye out, make sure no one's coming in at the time. And what about the base structure and the buildings and their layout? When I was there, it was before we had permit structures built at Kandahar. We had a place called the Boardwalk, which was kind of like the social hub, so to speak. So we had Subway was there and Pizza Hut and Timmy Hortons, which was amazing. That was a Canadian coffee shop. Best French vanilla latte you could get and I still haven't found one that good yet. That's quite impressive considering where you were. Yeah, so it was just, I think that was probably one of the nicest memories of the place. And I guess over time, Something I was told from my dad and from being his experience, he goes, the bad experiences sort of get pushed out and the good times and the camaraderie that you had stay with you. And I have to admit, that's pretty true. Um, I have an amazing group of women that I've kept in touch with and we were called the Avon crew, just as a bit of a joke because we used to get the Avon catalogue sent over to us so we could get some stuff sent back to make sure we, you know, looking after ourselves in the middle of this landlocked country called uh, Afghanistan. So... We had a group of 10 of us. We had one was a truck driver, two administration clerks, the forklift driver, the um, airload operator that worked for Air Force airload operator team. We also had the postmaster was female and two of our signal operators were also female. So it was a very unique group that we had and we've all kept in touch over time. Most of them have gone on to have their own families. I was actually the only one who was a mother at the time. So it was a very difficult thing for people to understand as a mum being separated from your children. So it was quite surreal. We had a rocket attack, our first one, and it was just one of those things where all your training and everything and we heard it, heard the, the whistle of it, we heard it land and we're in our room and we're grabbing our body armour and stuff to go into the shelters. And I never forget just sitting there going, if that had hit me, my kids would not have a mother. For the first probably six weeks while I was there, it was quite calm. Nothing was sort of happening. 
But when this happened, it sort of then that realisation hits you in the face that you were actually there in a war zone and you were there looking after people and making sure that we're getting our troops the supply that they needed, ensuring that, you know, the people out there in the FOBs are getting the support they need and that's your job. But at the other side of it, they still were rocketing us in what we presume was the safe area. You're staying behind the wire in your role. You're not out of patrol or at a FOB, but you're still in this great danger zone. The threat is very real. How often were you rocketed like that? Quite often. It was something probably weekly. You could always tell when we were going to get rocketed because there was the British would go out on patrol and we wouldn't get rocketed and then they'd come back in for their respite and then we would. So it, they rocketed us on Christmas Day, which was not the best, um, sort of made us, you know, almost overcook our lamb roast that we were cooking for Christmas Day. Sounds funny too. You sort of did get used to it. Um, you got used to the rocket and, you know, they weren't the best shots, but... It was something, you know, you just got on with it and did your job. You know, the first couple of times I admit was quite, you know, confronting for myself, but then we sort of made it a bit of a, you know, as as Aussies do, a bit of a joke and have it a bit of, you know, play whatever we did in the, you know, play um, paper, scissors, rocks in the rocket shelter or just, you know, just talk to each other and, you know, you've got 20 people shoved in a rocket shelter waiting for the all clear siren. So you get to know them very closely. So that's your standard operating procedure. Head to the shelter, have your gear on, wait it out have a laugh while you do so, and then back to it. Yep, pretty much, yeah. How is it actually getting back to it straight after an event like that? Of course, the first few times are particularly confronting, but then it's just part of your day. Yeah, because if you don't, then you can't dwell on it because if you do, you won't get your job done. It's just one of those things, and, you know, you're there, and for me, I'm there to look after the other people, you know, make sure the supplies are getting out, make sure people are getting paid, and, you know, I used to help the post office, the postie, make sure that the guys up in Town Cout got their mail. One of the things we did organise was the Herx, back when I was over there, couldn't land in Town Cout due to the dirt runway in winter. So, as I said, when I got there, it was quite hot, but by the time I left, it was negative 18 degrees. So I was there for a long time. So I was there for just uh, almost eight months. So it was a long, long deployment. Did you lose anyone over there? While I was there, yes, we lost four Australians. And did you attend any of those ramp ceremonies? I didn't attend them for the Australians because they were taken straight from Afghanistan over into Kuwait, but I did attend quite a few for our Canadian counterparts while we were in Kandahar because they were there. That was one of the saddest ones was one morning I was out for my morning run and the guys were on their way out and I was waving to them as I normally do. And that afternoon I'd heard that there'd been a, um, one of the guys, the, there'd been a roadside bomb and um, some of those young gentlemen had lost their lives. There are a lot of these serious, confronting, tougher moments over there, yeah. but overseas deployments is not without its humour and its lighter moments too. Do you have any funny recollections for me? Well, you know, we were talking earlier about our rocket attacks and stuff like that. And I will tell you, one time I was in washing my hair, as you do as a female, and I did hear the siren going off and I was halfway through conditioning my hair and I thought, you know what, I'm going to continue and just get this wash uh, conditioner out of my hair and then I will move. But my, I obviously, because when I was in Kandahar, we had shipping containers that we lived in. And our bathrooms were a separate facility, so you didn't take your body armour to the shower with you because the shower cubicles were so small that you can't even fit yourself in them. So that was one of the things where it's like, I don't have my body armour here anyway, So and I don't think they really appreciate me running out with my towel into the rocket shelter, so I made the decision to just stay where I was. And you obviously survived that encounter and made it to the shelter composed. I did, I did. And the other thing that I, you know, talking of showers was um, we had four showers and female and 
it was quite funny because the first person you raced there because you got the water pressure. By the fourth person trying to have a shower, it was a dribble and there was no pressure. So it was sort of like, you know, you had to take turns when you had your showers and yeah, just little things like that. You just adapt and overcome. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was good. Interesting times. Are there any other particular standout memories from that deployment you'd like to share? One of the things I did learn is how well the Australians work with all other nations. From that deployment, I have kept friends from the British Defence Force. I'm still in touch with all the nurses that worked opposite Kandahar. I had some fantastic memories of doing salsa dancing with the Dutch, who we also worked really closely with. One of my distinct memories I have was one night we really needed to get some bushranger tyres up to Tarrantcow and we couldn't because we couldn't get our Hercs in. So I was talking to a Dutch loadmaster and mentioned this. He goes, I'll organise something for you guys. And the next thing you know, we had a pallet from the Dutch at our camp to fill with the bushranger tyres to get it up to our guys that needed those tyres. To me, it's working together with our NATO alliances and getting things done for the sake of the common theme. So the really good thing with that was we were also able to get a lot of Christmas mail up for these guys. So imagine there's all these Australians trying to shove these post bags into this pallet to get as much mail as we could up uh, to our guys and girls up in Tarrant so that they could enjoy their Christmas and get their messages from their family as well. And the military never disappoints in giving you new skill sets like salsa dancing. That is correct. Yes, I did learn how to salsa dance. I will tell you I've never salsa danced again since leaving there, but it was just one of those nice outlets and a bit of a social, you know, just a bit of a social thing to take you away from the mundane of where you were and what you were doing and, you know, get out of your uniform, even though you were still in T-shirt and tracksuit pants. I used to wear bright pinks as much as I could to liven up the colour scheme of the drab brown. I imagine then it was a relief for you finally coming home. Coming home was the most amazing experience. My family had moved from Brisbane to Sydney whilst I was deployed. So that was a big thing for my family as well. Landing in Sydney, coming out and having welcome home mum on the signs of my daughters was just an amazing feeling seeing them waiting for me. I was also promoted whilst I was deployed. So I picked up my sergeant. So I've been promoted to sergeant on my return from Afghanistan. Well, you continue that path and commission as an officer. Yes. So after I got back from Afghanistan, I went into a sergeant role at RAF Base Richmond as an orderly room sergeant. And then I did a time at um, School of Postgraduate Studies as what we call a facilitator. So an instructor on the corporal promotion courses. So teaching leadership to our non-commissioned officers and getting them prepared for their role as leaders in the Air Force. So whilst I was doing that, I decided that I needed something more from the Air Force. And although I love my employer, I needed a change of direction and a change of job. So they call for applications for administration officer. So I put my application in and I was able to get through. So commissioned in 2013 uh, to what is now known as a personnel capability officer. And more importantly, you now outrank your husband. I do outrank my husband, but that was always the case anyway. Now it was just official. Yes. Tell me more about being a personnel capability officer. What are you doing between that and 2016? Well, just a little bit more background is my husband, when I was deployed to Afghanistan, my husband then did two deployments himself to the Middle East. 
So when I was commissioning, he was currently deployed in the Middle East and we had to organise him coming home to me to go to officer training school. He'd been gone for eight and a half months on his deployment and he got home. We had one week together, did a handover takeover of the children because my youngest had just started school and my oldest was in high school. So that was a big thing, big change for us. So we did a high five to each other and pretty much off I went to officer training school. While I was there, I did my officer training, which was different again and learning different skill sets to what I had known as a senior NCO. Also, I got to do sword drill, which I'd never, I've never done again, but it's one of those things as an officer, it's that kind of that rite of passage. And I really enjoyed learning that part of the skill set, but also learning the leadership and the different type of leadership that's required of you as an officer rather than as a senior NCO and learning about more the strategic level of Air Force rather than the nuts and bolts and getting people to do the jobs as a senior NCO. But I also could use my skill sets from my previous life. And I think that I've been able to combine the two quite well. Once I commissioned, I got posted to 76 Squadron, which is our Hawk training squadron for our fast jet pilots. And I'm so excited to be posted to a flying squadron again. I loved it. It was fantastic. So I moved up there in July 2015, 2013. My husband stayed in Sydney with our girls so they could finish school. So we did unaccompanied. So we worked out, we were apart for probably two years as a single parent family with either my husband or I being away. So then during my time at uh, 76 Squadron was when I got quite involved in the public affairs side of the Air Force, which I love. I love showing the public what we do and what we do well. And I think it's really important for us to put our stories out there for the public to understand that, you know, we are human. But also, you know, there's a lot of sacrifices going through for what people do in the military. So working at 76 Squadron and seeing these young men and women that have been striving their whole life to be a fast jet pilot and getting their dream, seeing them do their final flight and go on to now the guys that have been over in Operation Okra. They're the guys that I've worked with. And that to me is what we're here to do is to support each and every one of our members so that they can achieve their goals in their, in their job as well. I remember doing officer sword drill in cadets and I found that quite a fun experience too. And I sadly have never had a use for it since either. How did your husband find his experiences in the Middle East? His was a different type of experience for him. He was in charge of all the communication side of what was going on. So if there was any issues or like if there was a death or something, one of his main roles was to black out, do the shutdown until families were notified, that sort of thing. So really important like in the communication. So he basically ran the communications for the whole of the Middle East. That would have been quite draining in some respects then in some of our heavier periods of casualties and having to manage those very sensitive situations. Yes, yep. Communication is a big thing for us, so to make sure that they are maintained throughout the whole of the, the operational area is a big responsibility as well. Let's jump ahead to your next overseas deployment in 2016, Operation Aslan. Yes. Uh, first, can you give a bit of context to our listeners as to what this operation was about? Operation Aslan is the Australian contribution to the UNMISS, which is United Nations Mission in South Sudan. We have, when I was there, we had 23 personnel from Australia, ranging from sergeants up to a colonel in support of the operation for the United Nations Mission. South Sudan has a very, very turbulent history and in 2011 separated from Sudan. We did have Australians originally on the original UNMISS, which was the United Nations mission in Sudan. 
which then in 2011 changed to the United Nations mission in South Sudan. We have approximately 23 personnel deployed at a time on this operation and they're in headquarter jobs and working within the United Nations headquarters to ensure the safety and logistics and looking after the people of uh, South Sudan. Was this a deployment like Afghanistan that came up and you sought or was this one bestowed upon you? I was actually got a phone call from uh, our headquarters and many years ago as a sergeant, I'd actually applied for this particular role as the sergeant going over. They found my expression of interest and realised that I'd now commissioned and I got a phone call from headquarters air command saying, you've got all the skill sets for this position, we want you to go. What was your role and duties over there? So my role was officer in charge of the national support element. So my role with that was looking after the Australian contingent in our compound known as Australia House. Since I've been over my deployment there, Australia House has now been closed down and the people now live back on the UN bases of Tomping and um, UN House for safety reasons. But when I was there, my job, I looked after all of the logistics side of stuff. So I looked after making sure we had fuel for our vehicles, registration for our vehicles, looking after our locally employed civilians. So we employed cleaners, a house manager, and we also employed the warrior security guards to look after our safety and assist with that. Most of my time was confined to Australia House. So living in a small compound kind of like Melrose Place if you think about it if that's a sort of a a vision of what it looked like it was like an apartment block with a little tiny courtyard where cars were parked I had pay all the bills look after the finances one of my big jobs that I did when I was over there was to ensure the rotation of equipment for the Australian members of UNMIS and I negotiated and spoke with people from the South Sudanese government from the SBLA from United Nations to get a C-17 into South Sudan with our supplies and rotation of um, some stores. This question actually applies to both of your overseas deployments, of course, but how did you find the cultural adaptation in going into this overseas country? When I went into Afghanistan, because we weren't in the public as much, it wasn't so different. When I was deployed to Juba, which is the capital of South Sudan, I found that it was a very interesting dynamic. Dress of the people in South Sudan was just amazing. Like these are people that have no money. They are so poor, yet their dress was just so bright. Like they wear love bright colours and the men's shirts were so white. And we're like, how do they get these shirts so white when they have no electricity, no running water? Just incredible. Did you find out? Yeah, they just beat it on a rock. We did ask and they said they just scrub it and they hang it out in the sun and it's quite quite hot over there. You didn't give that a go? No, I didn't. No, I used the washing machine and I did not get anything as white as they did while I was over there. It was also culturally women don't drive and um, as you've seen, Alex, I'm actually not a very tall person. I'm just over five foot three and I have blonde hair. So You stand out. I did. So they used to always, my my staff, the luckily employed staff that I had used to always say to me, oh, you're so short, how can you drive that car? It was, I can. And they were quite surprised. And the looks I got from women over there that there's, you know, this little white lady was driving her vehicle. And what was always said to me is they wanted, my staff that worked for me and with me, always wanted their children, their girls to have the opportunity that I've had. So that was something that I found very, very interesting. And, you know, if I can show them that women can do it, then that's going to help them in the future. And not just drive a vehicle, but, you know, an officer leading and commanding. Yeah, well, that was another thing they found. Like I was the first female for Air Force to undertake the role of OIC. There'd been a couple of females from the Navy prior to me. 
The other thing that the Australians did when I was there, well, we were quite involved in the Juba orphanage and we would t- every Sunday go to the Juba orphanage and we used to go shopping first and get a whole lot of fresh uh, vegetables for the children and um, we would take it to the orphanage for them so that they had the vegetables for the week. And we did fundraising as well for them. Got a whole lot of stuff. Uh, DHL actually donated delivery of school products when we were over there and that was organised by one of the majors that I was deployed with at the time. Fantastic. Were there any engagements or close encounters which you were party to? Unfortunately, yes. We actually had a forced incursion into the compound of Australia House that I was in. That was within the first month of me being deployed. We had something happen. There was an incident and armed men came in to the compound. I was in my office and I stayed locked in my office with my senior NCO. We didn't go outside, but they did have two of my Australian members and some of my locally employed staff. Yeah, it was, it was not a very pleasant experience. Thankfully, we were all safe. Uh, and also, I'm really thankful they didn't open the door and realise that I was actually in the building at the time. One big difference between Afghanistan and South Sudan for you would have been comms back home. That was actually something I was in charge of, which was made my husband. <laughs> it was quite a funny thing because obviously my husband's a communication technician and I'm deployed in the middle of Africa looking after the communications for people to get home. So I'll never, one of the experience I had and um, I had to ring back to Australia because we we're having some huge issues with our access back home. So I rang the, the hotline thing and I'll never forget this Navy person. I can't remember his rank, but um, rang him up and I said, oh, I've got issues with this and it's not working and I really need some help about, you know, my began's not working. Oh, well, ma'am, you've got to contact your technician on, on site. And I'm like, okay, I'll go get them. Put the phone down, pick the phone back up and said, well, your technician's here. And he goes, ma'am, that's you. And I went, yes, that's me. So when you're talking about communication stuff, I said, talk to me in colours. What what colour plug do I put to what colour plug? <laughs> we need to get it working. But it was one of those things where you really do dig deep on experience and just make things work. I do have some photos I can give you of what some of our communication system looked like. It was quite interesting and you can't describe it. It was just, yeah, it was pretty, um, how shall we put it, third world in how we had to work. And it was a very different scenario to anything I'd ever worked in. You know, we're so used to things happening so quickly and stuff didn't happen quickly. So, Well, I look forward to seeing the photos and sharing them on our website and social media. Do you have any other highlights from this deployment? I think working with the UN, with the United Nations, is one of the biggest things. I was very lucky to be selected for a United Nations female officer training course in Pretoria in South Africa, where I went on the second one and they've been doing it twice a year since then, since 2015. And what it is, is women officers from all over the world get together and do training to encourage more women to actually go on UN missions. One of the things when you're working with the United Nations I found was there isn't enough women out doing some of the more face-to-face contact with the community. When I was there, uh, there was a Canadian and a New Zealand officers that were actually as a military observer and they were going out and the amount of information that a military observer from female, because females talk to females, and that's something in some of the countries that we go to, that we've got to understand the dynamics of their culture and how things are made up. So that's something I've learned. And once again, made a huge amount of friends from all over the world and working with the United Nations and just seeing how, you know, for a common cause, how different countries come together. So there was the Japanese engineers were there. We had the Nepalese army. We also had the Indian army, Bangladesh, 
and also from Rwanda. And I got to fly on a Rwandan helicopter, which one of my really good memories was I needed to go up to Ball. Now, Ball, if you think about Sydney to Newcastle, took you two hours to drive up here this morning? Just under, yeah. Yeah. So the roads are so bad, it would take us two days to get to Ball, and it is the same amount of distance from Duba as Sydney to Newcastle. Wow. So I ended up flying up because I had to go up and fix up some and do some quality checks and just on some Australian stuff that was up in Ball with our three people that were based there at the time working with the United Nations up there. So I got to fly up on a Rwandan helicopter and just flying up and seeing the Nile out of the, you know, a United Nations helicopter with different people that I've never seen before, being in the middle of Africa like that and, um, yeah, just amazing. It's an amazing country and I hopefully you know, in time they can put aside their differences and actually work together because it is a very pretty country and they have people that just want to have a nice life. The military has been a cornerstone of your life for such a long period of time and over the course of your time there you've got married, had children, you've elevated yourself into officer rank, you've achieved a lot throughout all that. And we talked earlier about how these deployments are skills testing, skills validation, you're finally getting to test and prove yourself in theatre and do quote unquote the real thing. How do you look back now on Afghanistan and South Sudan and how they changed you and grew you? I think one of the biggest things for me when I was in Afghanistan and something I was told by one of my girlfriends who was a mum, she goes, you're going over as Donna Clark. You're not Donna the mum, you're not Donna the wife, you're going over to do the job that you've trained for. And I had to make that distinction, especially in the first few months that I was deployed because being away from young children was very difficult. But one of the things I've learned over time is education is the key for your kids as well. A lot of people say to me, oh, you poor children. My girls don't know any different. They've only ever known the Air Force life. And that to me is something that's really important. So when my next deployment came up, my girls were a little bit older. We sat down as a family and they've always been involved in the decisions that have been made for my career. So they actually said, no, mum, you've always wanted to do United Nations mission. We want you to do this. So it was a family decision for me to go. One of the things I do realise and I have is your family is the most important thing in the world. You know, we can have our career and I can do what I need to do, but if I didn't have the support of my family, I couldn't have done what I'm doing and what I continue to do. And they've always been always been very supportive. Like they always have asked me to go and do talks at their school and those sort of things. I have a lot of kids from their school come up and go, oh, you're, you're Haley's mum, you know how to do this. Oh, you've used a weapon. You're really cool. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And Haley's like, oh, mum, they think you're amazing. And you don't realise the effect you have on people or children until it actually something like that happens. Because to me, I'm just doing my job. You know, I don't know anything different. Like I said, I joined up for three years and 23 years later, I'm still working for the same company and have a smile on my face going to work every day. So it's good. Well, as the civilian, I fully agree with the children. Very cool. (laughs) And we as a public are so thankful for the service you do because although it one sense to you is just a job, it is a job you've had to give so much of your life for and it affects other jobs, take people away from their home or whatnot. But there's something a bit different about what the military does as you're thinking that over when the Taliban is rocketing your base in Afghanistan. What's your current role, Donna? Currently, I'm the Personnel Capability Officer of Number 26 Squadron at RAF-based Williamtown. An amazing, I'm working for CSG now, which is a different force element group for the Air Force. So it's a different force element group to what I've worked in for a little while. 
So Combat Support Group is uh, CSG. So I am now looking after firefighters, tank operators, air movements, physical training instructors, my staff that I have as admin, and it's a huge support of the base. So aircraft don't fly if my unit isn't doing their job. So I assist the CO to make sure that everything's sort of still coming along in the background and do the do the things to make sure that people are looking after themselves, both medically, physically, and doing the right thing by the unit to keep everything going. What's next for you? I don't know. Um, I really, I love public affairs. So, so during my time at ACG, when I was at 76, I had the opportunity to do the public affairs for Avalon Air Show in 2015. So all the media releases for our Hornets and the flying and the Super Hornets and things like that. So very exciting. My next job I'd love to do is work more in the communication side of Air Force, whether it be the strategic communications, working at headquarters Air Command or doing a public affairs role for a unit that's what I'd like to do. That's where I see my future with the Air Force. I think um, the public need to know what we do and that's why I think things like this are really important because we don't talk about what we do very often. We don't talk about the effects sometimes it does have on families. As I said, the girls sometimes, I will tell you, my daughters have now told me I'm not allowed to go away again for a while. So my next deployment's on hold for probably till my youngest has finished high school, I think, <laughs> unless I have to go. But I agree with that point you make that Australians are, in some senses, this nation of quiet achievers that we don't want to brag about what we've done. It's not about us. It's about the mates. It's about the team and it's about the bigger picture. So getting people to agree to share their story is challenging for a whole range of reasons. But one of them is discomfort in sharing or talking about themselves and highlighting themselves. So I thank you for offering to share your story. Actually, I do want to ask you, so was that when you agreed to do this podcast, what motivated you to say yes to the invitation? So one of the big things for myself is I'm very, very supportive of women having a career in the military. One of the main reasons I wanted to do this was to let women know that you can be a mum, you can be a wife, and you can have your career and you can serve your country if this is the career that you want to do. It's not easy. You can't give 100% to everything. So at times it's 100% to work, which is when you're on deployment or things like that. And sometimes work has to take a back burner to your family. So I guess my big thing is that just to also educate the public that we have got mums that are over there deployed. You know, there's a lot of women out there. A lot of my girlfriends are in the military and we're all mums and we all balance it. And I think one of the big things why I wanted to do this was when I first come back, my first deployment, had my chest of medals, so proud, part marching in Anzac Day. And I had somebody say to me, you obviously didn't go before when you had your children. And I'm like, um, yeah, I did. And even now, like, you know, 10 years later, when I marching on Anzac Day, I had somebody ask me, they said, so who looks after your children when you're deployed? I'm like, uh, their father. So it's still out there that we don't have mums that are deployed or they don't think we're doing anything, oh, but you're not on the front line. And that's why I wanted to bring it up about the two deployments that I did, Alex, because I wasn't on the front line, but my life was in danger just as much as my counterparts who were out there doing their jobs as well. You know, there's no such thing as a front line anymore for the military. Like we are all over there, we're all serving and we work together, male, female, all the different nations that I've worked with for a common cause. We're in the era of asymmetric warfare. If you're in a uniform, you are putting yourself at risk. Yeah. And on that note, Donna, we are grateful for your service. Thank you. And thanks for having me in your home and speaking with me today. Thank you. My pleasure. If you enjoyed my conversation with Donna, please consider sharing the podcast on your social media. 
recommending it to a friend, or rating the show in your podcast app. Like us on Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast, follow us on Twitter at LOTLPod, and follow us on Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. And go to www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com for more information. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.